accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Sorry, I had a little bit of a stutter there. We are continuing our run through Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'm a little bit drunk. It's time to get moving. Uh, we're up to the fourth episode of the fourth season. It's called Hippocratic Oath. First aired on October 16th, 1995. It was written by Lisa Klink. Story goes to Nicholas Correa and Lisa Klink, directed by Rene Aubergenois. In this episode, Bashir helps uh, tries to help members of the Jem'Hadar unit free themselves of their addiction to the drug the founders use to control them. Meanwhile, Worf tries to adjust to life aboard DS9. Joy, uh, joined by Clay, as always, for the rest of DS9. Clay, how are you? I'm good. I was excited to learn the story of the Jem'Hadar uh, Hanukkah in this episode, where yeah. he took the drug that was supposed to last for five days and made it last for 20 or whatever that was. <laughs> I'm not too familiar with the Jewish uh, Jewish faith to comment. That sounds familiar to me. That makes a lot of sense. I believe that's the story of the menorah is they had uh, enough oil to light the lamp for one day, but they managed to make it last for eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. They sp- I apologize to anybody whose faith I just, you know, butchered, but... Yeah, we're going to be talking about Hippocratic Oath. We've had a couple strong episodes with uh, Way of the Warrior and then The Visitor, and now we're up to Hippocratic Oath, which is an interesting little, um, well, we'll get into it. I think that, uh, describing what the episode is is actually a good way to sort of talk about it. So we're going to take a break. I'll play an audio clip, and me and Clay are going to come back and break down Hippocratic Oath. You know about it. I know that the Gem Hadar have been genetically engineered by the Dominion to be addicted to what you call Ketracel White. And that by controlling the supply of this drug, the Founders maintain control over you. The Vorta. They are the ones who control the drug. They are the ones we came here to escape. Escape? You're trying to leave the Dominion? Yes. You disapprove. No, I... I'm just just surprised. Surprised because a Jem'Hadar soldier might want something more than the life of a slave. All right, Clay. So I shut off the uh, the prime the the lead in here, uh, saying that I would talk about what the episode is. This episode to me is interesting in that it is a, it's very much a sort of let's see where things stand episode um Mm -hmm. we've had two episodes that the way of the warrior was the big set piece thing and that sort of reset the storyline for the season uh visitor was a character piece that they usually do the quieter character piece after the big bombastic episodes and this one i feel was more table setting than anything you learn a lot about the dominion you learn a lot about bashir and o'brien's relationship and you learn a lot about what Worf is doing to try to fit in on deep space nine um do what? What do you think of this episode in general? And then we can sort of go from there. Uh, I thought it was great. I liked it a lot. Um, it it was very satisfying in the character stuff that they were doing. I thought the subplot with Worf was was really good um, and not too overpowering. And it didn't feel out of place because you know he is a new character to the show and see and he has a very uh, um, his uh, 
the way he handles things is fairly well known if you you watch Star Trek. Yeah. So to see him try to adjust to the new place and the new position, I like that stuff. Um, <clears throat> I thought the stuff with Bashir and O'Brien was great. Um, putting putting uh, Bashir in the situation of having to choose between being a doctor and helping these people or being a member of Starfleet and trying to escape the enemy, I thought was a very fascinating uh, thing to explore um, in a way I don't think they really have up to this point. Um, and then O'Brien being the uh, kind of hard-nosed soldier, I thought worked really well. Yeah. That did. And uh, <laughs> yeah. basically this whole episode is about racism. <laughs> Because Worf's being super racist toward the Ferengi, which I've been saying is the hallmark of this whole universe where people are, everybody is, oh, everybody's, no, there's no racism. Everybody loves everybody. Everybody is racist towards the Ferengi. Everyone. It's acceptable. And uh, and O'Brien is being fairly, you know, for lack of a better term, racist towards the Jem'Hadar. Because <laughs> the Jem'Hadar is, those guys are like, listen, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to get the fuck out of here. We don't like the Dominion, and O'Brien isn't having it. And, you know, it's one of those situations where it's like, you know, is he wrong? I don't know. I mean, obviously, you would like to be more uh, accommodating or at least have the leave the door open to thinking it, um, about a certain group of individuals outside of what you stereotypically the way you stereotypically would, but also they are in a war. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if, if either of them are really in the wrong, uh, you probably can argue that, that O'Brien is, and I wouldn't say you were wrong for doing that, but it's a very interesting gray area to place them in. And I think it's, I think it's more effective here than a lot of times they've tried to do this stuff, uh, previously. So, for, uh, first thing, point just to clarify, there is an official start to the war, so we're not at war yet. I know that you you weren't being that specific, but just so uh, well, yeah. But the Jem Hadar are are who enemies. they are. I mean, yeah, they, they yeah. are enemies. Yeah. So, um, I just wanted to prevent uh, YouTube comments of people clarifying that the war has not actually started. Um, the, well, f- World War One technically started before <laughs> Archduke Ferdinand got killed, too. So, you know the. Um, the, the Did I say World War Two? World War One. You you okay, meant good. yeah. I'll clarify that for you too. The um, the thing about this episode is that my least favorite part of it is that it ends with Cisco telling Worf, Mister uh, Michael Dorn, you were on a show that now has shades of gray. You're not on TNG anymore. He basically <laughs> tells him that, and I thought that that is too. It was unnecessary to say because the entire episode is about that. Like the entire episode is a really a DS nine thing that they're going to they've been getting into and they're going to get more into which is this examination of both sides of an issue in a way that makes sense for both sides Mm -hmm. and they're pairing it off by putting Worf into it where Worf is coming from the TNG perspective where I am chief of security this person has done something wrong on TNG we punished people who did things wrong and that was the way that our show was set up and Cisco has the nice scene about, you know, the nice thing at the end where he's talking about the, the station is different. There is no manual. There is no uh, guidance for how to operate in this setting. You kind of have to learn what you're doing as you go through it. And people do different things to learn how to do their jobs, as Odo has demonstrated. 
Um, and the, you know, the Bashir and O'Brien thing or the conflict about whether or not they should help is another kind of thing that goes on to that. And it's a, if anything, I think the episode suffers slightly from being so blatantly having every story be about shades of gray that it seems like they're really trying to hammer home this point. Um, I think Mm -hmm. it's effective, but I think that would be my one criticism of it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, I was happy that the way that they handled the wharf thing wasn't the way I expected it was going to go. I, I, I thought it was going to be more like, uh, you know, the way they do it on every kid's show, where it's like, it turns out that the person that they thought was doing shitty stuff wasn't doing shitty stuff. They yep. were just buying gems for their girlfriend or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yep. And this was like, no, this guy's doing shitty stuff, but... <laughs> Oh, you need to back the fuck off because Odo is going to is he's going to handle this. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't I don't know if I read the wharf thing as shades of gr- as explicitly being about shades of gray as much as it being about uh, there's a we handle things a little bit differently. Like, I, I think. Well, there's shades well, of gray in that crime will not immediately punished be punished here you know there's oh, a yeah, there, okay. we, we're willing to bend the rules about allowing this guy to do illicit activities and just because we think it's going to further our cause as opposed to a tng episode which would be like this guy's broken the law i need to stop him yeah that's fair yeah um that's true. the 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 wharf thing is it, it's it's fun because the wharf thing plays into something we've always talked about on the series where characters on this show yell at each other and it mm-hmm. features some great Odo and Worf yelling at each other sequences. And I, I, what do you think about the Odo and Worf pairing? I think that it's, you know, they, they, they clash naturally because of their role as former security officer and current security officer. But I think that their personalities are actually a very interesting mix as well, because the way they approach their jobs is so in line with their personalities that they can't help but be um, adversarial to each other. Yeah, I, I like their pairing. Um because they are, because of the different ways that they approach the, the same job. Like I, I watching that scene with the two of them, I was imagining Odo going like, "Jesus, I, uh, why can't I just talk to Quark?" Right. Like as as, <laughs> as much as Quark, as much as Quark is like a, a, a kind of a slimy ne'er do well. Um, he and Odo are more alike than Odo and Worf are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing Odo and Worf. Uh, verbally spar with each other was 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 pretty interesting, and I'm sure I'm sure Odo probably, you know, he wouldn't say this, but I'm sure he probably doesn't think super highly of Worf. Uh, no, no, just because of the way Worf acts, most likely. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I, I think I would actually say I think Worf thinks less of Odo than Odo thinks of Worf. That's um, true. Yeah, I think that Worf really can't comprehend how Odo does things because. Worf's right and wrong is literally written down. He's very yeah. much about the the written rule of the law and like these are the rules and you're not allowed to do that. Odo, as we've seen and as it ex- is exposed here, Odo has a much more personal sense of justice and what is mm-hmm. right and wrong for things to do. And he's not one to follow the rule book. He's more, I am the final arbiter of what goes on. That's his role as a, a founder. The founders think the same way. And it's that kind of genetic implication that he's related to that. Um, but I'm sure Odo... I'm sorry. I was just saying, I'm sure Odo thinks Worf is probably kind of naive. Yes, I, I, that's. I, I would think that Odo thinks Worf is naive, and but yeah. Odo or Worf thinks that Odo is incapable of doing the job properly. 
Yeah, that would yeah, be a, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's not much. There's not much else to that. So you like that subplot you mentioned? What would you think that you really enjoyed about? it? I think we'll just go through this one, breaking down the plots because they're all kind of sub uh, distinct from each other. Um, did you just like the interaction, or you thought it was kind of a neat way to bring Worf onto the show, or what were you thinking? Yeah, I thought it was a good uh, a good way to get him involved um, in a way that made sense. That was a little bit more personal than uh, just having him also be there for stuff. Um, Telling Jake to get it, off the station. Yeah, and uh, and it was it's a it is a nice uh, you know wharf wharf being kind of uh, fish out of water is always kind of interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah. So having him be a fish out of water inside of Starfleet uh because he's changed jobs and changed assignments and stuff i it, it was interesting it was it was nice to see to see some of that the wharf stuff getting in there um i mean do, yeah, do you think i just thought it was i thought it was well done do you think that the show do you think that the show really embraces the fact that starfleet is not the dominant organization in this setting do you know what i mean do you, do you think that I think the show suffers a little bit in telling its story sometimes just because because we everything we see is through the eyes of Starfleet. We get this sense that Starfleet is dominant in the station. And episodes like mm-hmm. this, and I think what the general setup of the series is meant to imply that they are more a um, co-worker with the other mm-hmm. agencies and they don't have this dominance that they seem... They're, they're there to run the station and be the administrators, but they don't have... Uh, the final say on things and they don't have the sort of control over every aspect that they would on a, on a starship. I, I, I love it when the show goes into this sort of examination, but I don't know if the series as a whole is consistent about it or if it brings it up in the best way possible in other episodes other than this one. Yeah. I, I think, I think this one, they illustrate it pretty well. Yes. Uh, cause, yeah. cause Worf is, uh, the, the stand in for TNG, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and in TNG, for the most part, Starfleet is the overbearing influence on everything. Um, <clears throat> and in this show, clearly that's not the case. Uh, it's, it's an interesting way of... Because everyone, everyone on the ship is subservient to Starfleet. Not everyone on the station belongs in Starfleet, so you can't boss them around is what we're, what we're saying, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, uh, um, and it, it, it is also indicative of a larger world. You're a larger universe, you know. Uh, because, uh, I mean, what, what Worf is learning is, is, is part of what he's learning is that there are the, the universe still functions outside of Starfleet. Yes. And, uh, and that's the way deep space nine works. Um, which is, which is fun. It's, it's nice to, to, to put him into that situation. He's a good character to, uh, to use. I think, you know, another reason why he was the, the best character to, to bring over. You yeah. know, as we talked about, he's the only one that really makes sense. And I think he's the one that has the most uh, possibilities for for interesting stories and character development and stuff. Right. You know, I was thinking I was thinking about bringing data over and I was wondering if data would have worked. And I think this episode kind of highlights why data wouldn't work, because data's reaction to Odo would not have been adversarial, it would have been confusion. Right. Like right. he, he would right. have been he would not have been willing to sort of keep pushing against him in the way that Worf is here. And I think that the the strife between the characters is, is a big part of what drives the series. Data would be I don't think Data would work on DS9 well in the stories <laughs> that DS9 tells because he's not he doesn't stand up for himself in a way that I think that the conflicts on DS9 need. And yeah. that would have been the problem. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. 
so let's talk about the before we go into well yeah we'll save the Bashir thing uh for a little bit what I like about the what I think is interesting about this episode is that it uh it does a lot of re-explaining and clarifying rules of what the dominion are uh I think we get a lot of information here that we've never heard before and a lot of it is going to stick going forward uh Ketchasel White is named that's the drug the Jemadar are addicted to it's never been named before this uh the Vorta control Ketchasel White for the Jem'Hadar, which is mentioned in this episode. Have we met the Vorta? They're the pointy-eared guys who... Oh, right, right, yeah, yes. Yeah. We haven't seen them recently, but they are the, the ones, ones that we've the, seen. The, uh, the brief psychic powers? Yes, the, the yeah. brief psychic powers. Um, those are the Vorta, so they control the Ketrasel White. We learned that there's a... Um, the Dominion is not maybe as hegemonic and homogenous as the earlier seasons had seemed to imply, there is strife behind the scenes of the Dominion. They are not a unified force, even though the Jemadar have been bred and the uh, Vorta have been bred to serve the founders and view them as gods, which is, I think this is the first time that they've said that they view them as gods in this episode. I like that. I like that speech. Yeah, that's a, so uh, I'll kick it off to you there. That's a very important thing that the show is going to stick to, that the, the Jemadar and the Vorta have been, uh, bred basically and genetically altered all the species in the dominion apparently have been bred to view the founders as um, divine on some level mm-hmm. and it's a huge driving force behind them here and I think it adds a lot to the the sort of strife that the Jemadar are feeling here and I don't know how many Jemadar feel the way that these guys do but it's nice to see a breakdown of their society behind the scenes yeah I, I liked um, I liked the Jemadar talking about the the founders as though as though they were gods at first like stumbling through understanding of what the term god meant mm-hmm. and then he's like this is what i think a god is and yeah, right. that's how we that's how we view the founders <laughs> yeah except they don't care about us is his takeaway yeah yeah it's it's a uh, it's a very interesting um uh insight to a person's relationship with a deity uh given put put in the mouth of a space alien yeah he, he's um, he's kind of lost he's lost the faith right he yeah. is he's questioning why this is has to be the way that it is he's questioning what his role and everything he's questioning why the people who he views as divine don't seem to care about him on any uh on any sort of end result that he might end up with the only thing that they he claims the founders care about is that they fight for them yeah yeah and um the uh what does he say? He says they uh, they don't talk to us. Yeah, or, he's never met a founder. And they don't talk. To, our gods don't talk to us. Yeah, yeah and and and, use, and comparing that to someone else's god who does have this faith, who's like, oh yeah, see, they talked. My god talks to me. I talk to God. But and then his response is like, oh, we seem to have that too. They he, don't talk to us. It, yeah. it was it was it was a very interesting scene. I like that. Yeah, it's a. I mean, a lot of religion is about the personal relationship that you, or at least right. you know, Christianity is about the personal relationship that you have with God and Jesus Christ and everything like that. And the Jem Hadar have a religion that there is no personal connection. There's just a bunch of rules that they have to yeah. follow, um, yeah. which would probably lead them to feeling very empty as they do here. So I think that, this guy is a weird name. I'll have to look it up just so I know what I talk about. But the lead Jem Hadar has a very, um, Garanganar is uh, a tough, he has a, he has a tough cell in a tough place in the universe, I think. Yeah. And I also liked, um, when, uh, Bashir was talking about Odo, and he was kind of like, oh, 
that's the founder that lives on your on your stage. Like he was he was very fascinated yeah. by the concept of Odo and that he actively was working with them. And to, I, yeah, that was a that was a really uh, I think that was an uh, an insight into uh, the I don't even want to say religion, but like that that insight to the Jemadar, I think was was more nuanced and interesting. I know I use that word a lot. Um, than a lot of other species that they've gotten into. Like I find, I found that a lot more engaging than anything they've ever done with like Kalis or is that the name of the Klingon God? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. prophet. He's basically, yeah, he's the prophet Kalis. Yeah. yeah. Like, or, you know, even the, the Bajoran stuff, like, yeah, you know how much I, I don't like the, <laughs> the, that shit. Yeah. Uh, but like the Jem'Hadar stuff, that was, that was the meat. That's what, I, that's what I want to say. Uh, well, it's know, because that, the, the religion and the other stuff you're so if I were ranked them, Bajorans would be worse than the Klingons and then the Jem'Hadar. And I think that the the difference there is that the Bajoran religion is completely window dressing. It has like yes, no impact exactly. on anything. Kalas yeah. at least is a prophet who was a great fighter, and that sort of informs the warrior culture that the Klingons have. Um, yeah, there's a little bit more, but it fleshes it out a little bit. Here, the prophets of the Jem'Hadar have totally controlled what they are and what they do. And so analyzing the the relationship there feels actually more religious in a way than mm. other things because it feels like the Jem'Hadar have this relationship that they just can't break away from and they really believe in it in a way that the, the other religions in Star Trek kind of just feel like stories that people have uh, that they associate themselves with. Yeah, where, where the other ones, be it Klingons or Bajorans or Vulcans, they they feel like it always feel like feels like we are sci-fi characters and part of our civilization is that we also have religion you know yes. that kind of thing yep. Yep. whereas the the Jem'Hadar are actually what they're doing with the Jem'Hadar they're actually getting into what that means and where that comes from and uh, the actual they're kind of touching a little bit on the actual origin of this concept because it's a it is not a religious relationship. It is a master and slave relationship that yes. is that is aloof enough that it takes on the appearance of a deity or a religion. And I think that's that's very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's it's true. It's an implied religion just because the founders have positioned themselves at the top of the hierarchy. And the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta don't see anyone higher than the founders. Um and again, interesting that the founders don't show themselves to the other races. They're just kind of there in the background, um, mm. which works as a changeling, obviously. Like the changelings have, he probably has met a changeling. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, he well, just wasn't, I like, I, wasn't aware of it. I think that's it. part of what I like about it is because the changelings are inherently or like traditionally or archetypally uh, mythological type characters. Like, uh, you know, Greek Greek religion, uh, Greek mythology is rife with gods coming down and changing form into X, Y, and Z. So that that's sort of a character like that who has a relationship with uh, uh, people who they're subjugating. I can I can and who they have not interacted with personally. I can see why that would kind of get elevated, especially because the Jem'Hadar aren't exactly you know Rhodes scholars, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really a really good uh, expansion of that relationship, and that's much more engaging than just like we're the founders and this is our muscle, the Jem'Hadar. Right. I wish they they all wish they could meet Klingons. 
we see, I remember some things about this show. We genetically bred them to want to meet one other group of people. <laughs> um, so I think that, so that that's a good discussion about the, um, I mean, we'll learn more about this. This is, it's, it's a very intro sort of lesson about what the Dominion setup are. We learn the Vorta become some of my favorite characters uh, just because of the way that they are eventually written. And they're kind of hinted at here as being middle management. Uh, to the founders, they are sort of mm-hmm. the uh, the administrators of the group. Um, so let's talk about O'Brien and Bashir. I think this is by far the best O'Brien and Bashir storyline that those two have had, and they've had a few to this point because it takes their chummy sort of devil may care, goofy friendship that always serves as a little bit as comic relief, and it actually puts them into a situation where they disagree with each other. Yeah. And it brings the whole thing of Bashir outranking O'Brien into it. Does that mean anything? It's like you said, mm-hmm. I think this is, it's 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 really great characterization to me that O'Brien is actually a good soldier in this episode. Like he is very effective at being a soldier and fighting the entire time in a way that Bashir isn't. Mm-hmm. And it's a big learning episode for Bashir. I think we finally can say that the the naive goofy horn dog of the first couple seasons is no longer his primary characterization as a character. He's still got some of that. Like he's, that. he's naive, and O'Brien's problem with him here is that he thinks he's naive. Just like Odo would say that Worf is naive, I think O'Brien would say that Bashir is naive about what's going on. Yeah, but I, I think that they 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 do well to put that stuff at the front of the episode because they 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 do have a scene where uh, their first scene in the ship there, uh, O'Brien is Keiko's mad at O'Brien because he. I don't know. He likes to hang out in another room or something. I forget exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, and then Bashir's advice isn't like, well, maybe you should talk to your wife and be honest. He's like, well, I mean, you could say that uh, that other room is just somewhere that makes you feel closer to her because it's a room that you two share. And it's like, oh, you don't yeah. want to be in a relationship with this guy. <laughs> This guy is—he's uh, gonna throw some throw some shit at you. Did you I th- would also like to point out. I thought he was trolling. Would it just my would my my interject? I thought he was. Give, oh, I thought he was trolling oh, okay. or O'Brien. Uh, or. I guess I guess I just assumed the worst from him as mm-hmm, far as mm-hmm. relationships with women go. Um, I would like to also point out very uncharacteristic gay joke. Yes, uh, that kind of caught me off guard. I mean, it, that's not usually something that they do in this show. It's usually above that kind of thing. No, and we've aged out of it. It's 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 both yeah. it's it's both old fashioned and we're now in an era where you're just like, ooh, that's a that's kind of a, a dumb joke or a bad joke yeah. to insert in that spot. Yeah, yeah, especially in a, a Star Trek universe, it's so rarely uh, so rarely mentioned or even brought up unless the episode is explicitly about people having sex. Um, yeah, I think that the Bashir and O'Brien's. I would sorry. I would like to say that in. A- in TNG, though, I think they would have done that joke better because O'Brien would have said what he said, and then they just would have cut to Riker's eyebrows going up. <laughs> Which is my fa- it, it, it says all you need to say. The I'll try to see how to get into this. I I don't know if um <laughs> I don't know if Bashir and O'Brien's storyline is the focus of the episode i think that everything that happens in this one is pretty much an even split and i think that the show is just trying to establish a lot of information through various means and various Mm -hmm. storylines um 
again, their conflict ties into the whole shades of gray about whether it's right to help these people in this situation or whether or not they're going to be doing more harm than good if they help them, which is a very, it's a TNG story, right? Like you could see this episode on TNG and I know I compare it a lot, but I think it's helpful for sort of explaining what DS9 is trying to do in my opinion anyway. If this was a TNG episode, O'Brien's argument would not be a good argument. Right. Does that that make sense? Like it would be Bashir is making the correct moral decision here and O'Brien might disagree, but Bashir will come around and convince him by the end of the episode that what they did was the right thing. Right. That's not the case here. They ended actually fighting, although they do make a a sly little nod to the fact that the show will be back in a week and they will be friends again Um, when he's like in a couple (laughs) of days, we'll still be playing darts, but incorrectly, but O'Brien, O'Brien is not, incorrect here and i could see i think this is one of the better star trek episodes of both of those characters have a point that i can actually agree with be uh, like and i'm not i don't have to say like well his point is really kind of wrong it's not the um the bones situation where every bones against spock argument is like the most crazy over-the-top emotional argument that mccoy is making and yeah. it's like all right calm down dude this even when uh, like I, that, that stood out to me when we, were, when we were watching wrath of khan the other night when they're talking about the genesis thing yes yeah and Spock is like, well, this could be bad. And then McCoy's like, what are you talking about? This is the worst thing that could ever happen. Anybody who gets their hands on this is the thing. And Spock's just like, I'm just trying to talk about it reasonably. He's like, what's there to be reasonable about? <laughs> exactly. That that doesn't happen here. These two have equally good arguments, in my opinion, about whether or not they should or should help. Apparently, my McCoy impression is is angry Richard Nixon. <laughs> I am not a crook, um, <laughs> but I am a doctor. <laughs> but I am a doctor. What did you think about Bashir and O'Brien? Um, yeah, like I said, I thought that stuff was great. Um, you know, like you said, the the whole episode is sort of about emphasizing the shades of gray stuff, and I think the way that they do it here is really uh, is really great. The one thing that I don't totally love is i don't know if you necessarily needed the thing about um the the what's his name greg Brownbaum. yeah greg 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 granagar granagar i don't i don't know if you needed the thing about him possibly just being bred to be immune to the thing yeah yeah uh because that seems to take away from what they're kind of do they're trying to do here um but what's other your, than that what's your read on him actually what do, what do you think happened to him uh after they left or no, like uh, just in general as, oh, why, just in general? as why, he, why he's immune to the catcher cell effects um i don't know i uh i i honestly i honestly don't don't really know i i if i had to take a guess about why they did the thing about him possibly being immune i think it might be because the alternative probably opens up a door they don't really want right now mm-hmm. uh, because they're telling the story about these Jem'Hadar who are trying to fight against it led by this guy who is who is no longer dependent on this drug if that is something that exists it's sort of like a Tom Riker situation where it's like oh so well then why don't more of them do this or yes, you know that yeah. that op- that opens up a a a, a, a side a side 
quest or I don't know what the word, you know, sidetrack. Yeah. Yeah. A sidetrack that they don't really need right now because that's just going to make things more complicated. They're trying to get into this war story so they can still tell the story without leaving that hanging. Yeah. Um, But I don't know if it's entirely necessary. Uh, I think it's I think it's purely and I hope it's intentional. I would assume it's intentional. I think it's purely supposed to represent the fact that the Ketracel White is a stand in for their faith. And he's the, he's okay. the only Jem'Hadar who has completely lost the faith at this point. The other ones are willing to go back. They just want to get, they want to not have suffer the side effects of the drug, but they still act like Jem'Hadar as they're going through the story. Yeah. He he has lost the founder control, which is the faith, and the Ketracel White being immune is, to me, it's just symbolizing the fact that he doesn't need this anymore, and the other Jem'Hadar do need it. They just don't want to have it. But he's different and unique in that sense. Yeah, that's that makes total sense. Yeah, I I, I was thinking more like uh, literally, but yeah, sure, uh, sure. Meta- metaphorically, yeah, that I, I would I would buy that. See, because the, the the problem with literally is I think that they give you a whole bunch of options about what one happened, and they don't say any of them are definitively. Oh what yeah, happened yeah, no, I, yeah. I I don't I don't I don't think there is a literal answer really. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that way though. Yeah. Um. Let's see here. So yeah, Bashir and O'Brien. Um. It's the first time we've seen Bashir use his rank on O'Brien. Uh, I thought that That's, was a good scene. I, I actually did want to mention that because that really stood out to me. Um, specifically because you don't – I feel like they don't really do that with characters who are chummy with each other. Like I, I can't remember – I mean I'm sure it has happened. But like it felt out of place um, in that world. Like I feel like you don't ever get – Spock, uh, Kirk pulling rank on Spock like that. You know, if he does it, he usually does it kind of like jokingly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you, I, having two characters who are friends like that, having one literally just pull rank on the other one feels feels like a big move. Um, it's big for their it's big for their relationship, right? I yeah, think it's the first yeah. time it's ever happened, and it's O'Brien had. I think in O'Brien's mind, he had never thought that Bashir was the kind of person who would be capable of doing that he's surprised by it when it happens yeah and i mean I, I i think that's probably part of it too is like i don't see bashir as the type of character to do that right i think it, it, i i almost get the impression that rank is inconsequential to bashir he doesn't give a shit what his rank is yeah and even by the end of the episode o'brien is still calling him julian you know he hasn't he hasn't he, he has a brief stretch where i think he calls him a lieutenant or something yeah. because he has to refer to him by rank but he's back to julian by the end of it yeah yeah uh, let's see. So I think that's pretty good. We're running long here though. So we're probably going to cut this one down there. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about this one? I think we did a pretty good job of covering them all. Um, um no, I think, I think I got everything in. It's not a, um, w- would you agree with my as- general assessment of the episode is kind of an information giving episode in a way that it's, it's maybe not the most, riveting or like involving storyline but i feel like it's just the episode is kind of re resetting the audience to with new information or uh, peppering them with new information that they'll be able to use going forward is how i see it yeah i think so but i i think it's done in a very uh engaging way you know mm-hmm. it's not it's not a lot of just dumping stuff it's it's giving you stuff but giving you kind of a reason to think about why they're doing it yeah um and i think that's important to be able to do that uh, like, you know, in movies, there's the character, you, you got to cast somebody well, who's going to be your exposition guy. Uh, like we, I was watching the rock the other day and, um, there's one character 
uh, in that who is just basically the only thing he does is just dump exposition. Yeah. But he's so good at it that you kind of don't even realize he's doing it. Um, and his character's just such an asshole slime ball that he's he's getting into these arguments and then he's just like dumping a bunch of backstory and exposition and you're like, oh yeah, that's very yeah. sly the way they did that. But yeah, here they, they do it, but they... You know, they give you stuff to chew on. It's it's not just uh, you know giving you a giving you five pages of text you need to read. Yeah, may, and maybe my I feel there's a lot going on in the episode to the point where none of the stories is really um, the primary focus, and maybe that's kind of what I'm picking up on as well. Like you, yeah, you, you see, you see, it's not it's more than surface level, but you don't super, you don't dig super deep into everything, even though all the stories kind of combine with each other and provide the same lesson by the end of it, but. Uh, it feels more like the, to me that they're trying to spread the wealth a little bit and get as many people involved as they can, and mm-hmm. while pushing the the moral or the 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 point that they're trying to make through the script. Yep. Uh, all right, so we're going to take a break. I'll play an audio clip. Me and Clay are going to come back, and we're going to give our final thoughts and read some patron thoughts. Where it gets around in a place like this, it's one of the things you have to get used to. One of many things, it seems. Starfleet officers often have trouble learning the unofficial rules of the station. There's no manual to study. You have to learn things as you go. A little different than life on a starship. When I served aboard the Enterprise, I always knew who were my allies and who were my enemies. Let's just say DS9 has more shades of gray and quark. Definitely is a shade of great. All right. So patron thoughts. If you guys support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file, you can leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes and we read them and react to them on the podcast. Uh, Termi says Hippocratic Oath. I can see both sides of the argument in this episode. Fully understand Bashir's desire to help the Jem'Hadar and O'Brien's desire not to be held captive by ruthless killers. In the end, it's not wrapped up in a neat little bow, and that's my favorite part because it's believable. I assume all the Jem'Hadar die, and the episode created some genuine tension between Miles and Julian. The subplot was meh, but I do like that Worf is taking some time to adjust. Holly McLaughlin says, Hippocratic Oath, the conceit of this episode is that there can be such a thing as a rogue Jem'Hadar at all, much less a group of them. This is completely implausible and directly contradicts what we know about the Jem'Hadar to this point and what we learned about them for the rest of the series. The idea that they have a sufficient amount of free will to reject their gods then wor- when worshipping the founders is in their very DNA just doesn't work, and I can't get past that. Having said that, Bashir's determination to try and help was satisfying and believable. Uh, let's see here. Kyle Barris says, Hippocratic Oath. It's great seeing Worf still in his TNG mindset on DS9, and I like seeing O'Brien and Bashir at odds, but I'm unsure about the treatment of the Jem'Hadar so far. I think they're explored in an interesting way in the episode, but the last episode we saw them, The Abandoned, also examined their drug addiction. The show's in danger of undercutting the threat of the Jem'Hadar that was so well set up in Season 2 finale in the Season 3 premiere. Overall, a good episode, but looked on as part of a serialized storytelling, I think we should have seen the Jem'Hadar kick some arse between the episodes focused on their weaknesses. Nick Sergi, Hippocratic Oath. I remember watching it with a buddy, and my buddy was totally surprised by the O'Brien shooting Julian's work. It's good when a show like this can still surprise you. Um, so what do you think, Clay? Do you want to respond to just the general sense that the Jem'Hadar uh, story is weakening them on some level, or it doesn't make sense? Would you agree or disagree with any of that? Um, I would. I would compromise and say that I think you could probably do more or less the same story without 
giving them like more free will and stuff. Because the idea of, of putting Bashir in a situation where he has to help them uh, because he is a doctor, uh, I think you can do that on a sim- on a simpler level mm-hmm. um, where they are still, you know, uh, killing machines or whatever. But they are they are have some sort of they have some sort of medical problem that needs uh, attention to yeah, yeah needs attention that he's there that he feels the need well he's forced to but he also feels the need to help them because um, he's seeing them as as pe- uh, for lack of a better term humans. Yep. Uh, well, I mean, the the thing is, you have to kind of humanize them, right? Because otherwise, you should just write them as the Dominion has this droid army. You know? Yeah. If, if, I mean, the, the Dominion's got their own. They have control of their own like green Borg, basically. Right. Yes. Which, there, uh, there'd be no Borg. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I you know, I I think I understand what they're saying about, um, maybe this being inconsistent or, or undercutting, I guess I can see that, but it's also like, yeah, wouldn't you rather learn more about them and see some outlying elements to their, their existence instead of just like these guys are just sharks. I, I, I think that they need that humanizing tragedy to their existence. It's like a very, um, it's, it's key to not have them just be the soldiers that the enemy, that this Trek characters always fight against yeah, in this situation. Yeah. Like they need something there. They can't just be brutal. They are brutal killing machines, but I think that it's, it's this, this episode, if anything else, it just, it shows a little bit of the cracks in the D- dominion foundation. Like things aren't yeah. kosher over there. And there is some things that they could pick apart on and maybe use in future episodes if they want to further go down this road. And I think that that makes sense. You can't have them, the dominion as an unstoppable juggernaut. Well, that is what they kind of are. It's not exciting if they don't have any sort of conflict going in within themselves. Yeah. And also, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, pro- I mean, this probably doesn't come up, but Bashir now has information about them yep. that they didn't have before. Like it, it, it gives them a little bit more insight into the, the, the villain that they're fighting. Um, I doubt, I doubt that five episodes from now, they're going to try to uh, appeal to the more, free willed of the Jem'Hadars yeah. as a tactic or something like that. But it's just, it is, you know, you want to, you want to learn stuff about these guys. And I think they, I think they don't do it lightly. I think they do. I think they use it to tell a good story and to give you an aspect of their, their relationship to the dominion that is otherwise, you know, like you're saying, they just, they seem like they're the, the guards outside of the witch, the wicked witch's castle, you know, Other, yes. otherwise they're just, yeah there for for uh uh muscle so uh clay you want to give your rating on this one first and then i'll go second yeah i'd give this one a four i think yeah or even a, even a high four i i just i really liked it i it's it kind of hits all the things that i like about star trek um good concept interesting stuff to think about um and i think it's a good a good step forward in the story that they're telling i thought it was i thought it was great I think it's a very, I'm going to agree, it's, it's kind of a four for me. I don't know if, I, I might actually say it's on the other end of a four, just being kind of a weaker four, but I think it's a very good, um, I think it shows the growth of the series when they can have an episode like this actually be compelling to watch at the same yeah. time. Like that's Oh a, yeah, if they did some, this in season one, it would have been garbage. Yeah, see, I, I would say even maybe through season two in the early parts of season three, I think that they yeah. might not have been very consistent with it. But here, they do a very good job of making the story compelling, giving you a lot of information, moving the whole thing forward, and it doesn't... Um, 
nothing feels off. I think that the show, if I would describe the show at this point, after all these, the first three episodes is it feels much more confident in the stories that it wants to do. And it doesn't have this sort of questioning of like, what is a DS nine story that we'd seen in previous seasons? Um, and we're early going, but that it's a very strong start to the season. I think you'd agree about that. We've had two fives and a four from both of us. Oh, um, definitely, yeah. Which which is interesting. Uh, that's about it, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. You can get all the Facebook and Twitter and Discord links in the video description. Patreon.com slash the Pensy File if you want to support the show. Uh, and that's about it. Rate us on iTunes. You can use your phone, the podcast app. That would be much appreciated if you could do that as well. Uh, and then the shout out goes to the Captain Tier patrons. As always, thanks to Stephen Cobb, Will Yates, Matt Flores, Sam McCuster, Santos Gonzalez, Robert Cummins, Andrew K. Olux, Benobi, Russ Graham, Eric Johnson, Nathan Elliott, Decker Sebastiani, Neil Brennan, Kerry Mobility, Michael Pond, Bradley Killens, Rune Venler, Jay Stanley, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Ben Douglas, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mango, Tark Latif. Guys, thank you very much for uh, joining us and thank you for supporting the show. Clay, thank you very much for uh, coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Guys, we'll be back in a couple days with the episode. What is after this one? Let me scroll. I, I always want to feel the need to look this up. I believe it's me. episode four. Episode indiscretion. That's right. Indis- indiscretion. We'll have a patron on for that one. So me and Clay will be joined by a patron, and we'll be talking about Ducat and Kira's relationships at length. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Have a good one. <laughs>